Welcome to Unfuck Your Brain, the only podcast that teaches you how to use psychology, feminism, and coaching to rewire your brain and get what you want in life. And now here's your host, Harvard Law School grad, feminist rock star, and master coach, Kara Lowenthal. Hello, my chickens. So I am going to bet that a lot of you who are listening are going to identify with what we're talking about this week. And for some of you, it may be very obvious. And for some of you, it may be a little more subtle, but we are going to be talking about dual socialization with two of my students, Anna and Chris, who will introduce themselves in a minute. They've both gone through my advanced certification in feminist coaching, and Anna actually works for me now as well. We're going to be talking about dual socialization, particularly from their perspective as being Latino women who live in the US. But I think, you know, a lot of us, even if we aren't biracial or aren't immigrants, have different forms of like competing socialization, right? I mean, I certainly think like some of my socialization as a Jewish person is different than the socialization I got as a woman in kind of dominant American culture. So if you're a minority religion or you, you know, they're different, I think you can relate to and get a lot out of this episode, even if you are not biracial or not an immigrant or don't have kind of a more obvious dual socialization. All right. So that's my spiel about why everybody should listen. And also just because these ladies are brilliant and they're going to talk about interesting brain things. And that's why we're here. So tell us a little bit. Why don't we just go alphabetically on a first then Chris about kind of who you coach and also like how you come to or what you bring to this topic in particular. Yeah. So my name is Ana Lopez. Many of you chickens might know me as your clutch coach. So that's super exciting. Hi. I'm also a sex coach. So I work with predominantly Latina women, mostly first gen about sex. And of course, everything relates to sex. So that could be confidence, body image, all the things. And I make my work very culturally relevant. So this is kind of my jam. Hi, I'm Chris Borlingeri. I was born and raised in Puerto Rico. And I've been living in the United States for about 14 years. I'm a physician, theologian, bakery owner. <laughs> I just, and, can we just pause on physician, theologian, bakery owner? Because <laughs> I just don't know if I've ever, I've had a lot of people with dual careers on here before, okay. but I don't know if I've had, and also coach. So physician, theologian, bakery owner, certified feminist coach. Like that is a, that's a four-way actually. That's just no style for degrees. <laughs> <laughs> You're like the poster child for multi-passion in. Yeah, right. Oh, buffering. Buffering. Buffering with degrees. <laughs> that is a thing, but stop disclaiming your accomplishments, please. No, we don't do okay. that on the podcast. <laughs> okay. So I'm Chris Borlingeri. I was born and raised in Puerto Rico, and I've been living in the United States for about 14 years now. And I'm just passionate about just helping Hispanic women, particularly first generation to create the relationship they want with food, their bodies, their families, and themselves. Love it. And you both use the term first generation, but I actually think people who are not an immigrant family might not even know, like might find that confusing. Like, is it the person who came or is it the first generation born here? So can you define that for everybody? Yeah. So my parents were born in Mexico. Well, actually half. So I'm biracial. So my father was born in Mexico and was brought here and then had children here in the United States. So I was raised by an immigrant or immigrant family. And I was raised here in the United States. There we go. That's today's terminology definition. Yeah, Chris. In my case, so I was born and raised in Puerto Rico. So my kids would be first generation, but in Puerto Rico, it's an American territory. So we are raised with a lot of Anglicism, which is kind of like Americanized version 
of our Spanish language and culture. So it's interesting, I shall say, because when I try to form friendships and be in community here, it's kind of like I don't fit into the people who migrated here from Hispanic mm-hmm. countries, but I'm also cannot relate a lot with first generation. But I think because of the way I was raised in Puerto Rico, it's more likelihood to first generation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about this. I mean, you guys had a couple of different areas you sort of felt like would be good places to highlight how dual socialization can impact you. I think it would be interesting, Anna, if we just started with kind of your niche, like you work with sex that relates to so many different things, but how do you see dual socialization coming up for first, you mostly first generation Latinas in this country around sex? Oh, wait, actually we should define dual socialization. I know that just seems (laughs) obvious, but we should probably back up. How do you guys define dual socialization? Yeah. So in my mind, dual socialization is like we are right. So obviously we have all been socialized regardless of identity, what in whatever area. So we are socialized in those of us in the United States are being socialized by like American culture, by like the patriarchy, all the things. And then we get very different messaging at home. So this can be for anyone that's from like a different, you know, a minority population. Right. So in my work with my clients, it's very like traditional Latino household, right? So our values and what we kind of teach our children are very different than that of what we learn in the United States. Can you give us an example that you feel like illustrates that for folks? Yeah. So, well, going back to your question about sex. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So we don't talk about sex typically in like Latino households. And I just want to preface this by saying this podcast is probably going to be full of generalizations. So (laughs) <laughs> stick <Yes>. with <laughs> just just listen for the the message that i just message. watched this um do you guys follow caitlin riley is that her yeah. Yeah, yeah okay she did this imitation of a tiktok tarot card reader which i posted to my stories but in it she's constantly saying take what fits take what fits don't force it if it doesn't fit i'm just the messenger take what fits like so i feel like that should be for every podcast like just <laughs> take what fits if it doesn't right. fit that's okay then it's not for you <laughs> right so so yeah so again take what fits so we don't typically don't talk about sex in Latino households. So this is like sex, like the act of sex, like things go here and like all those things, preparation, pleasure, all those things, but also like about our bodies, like the function of our bodies, things like that. The way in that it's not talked about, it becomes interpreted or like internalized as like very shameful and guiltful behavior, especially because our culture is highly rooted in like Catholicism, even if we don't necessarily like, I'm not Catholic, I wasn't raised Catholic, but still those messages still got kind of like passed on. My parents aren't Catholic. So like, it's very deeply rooted in our culture. And so we kind of get those messages. And I know that in the United States, there's also a lot of anti-sex rhetoric and messages that individuals receive. But I think that it's even more so in the Latino culture, I see it almost like it's highlighted even more. It's like, oh, like clutch my pearls moment. Like if you even say like the word tampon, like, like I went to Mexico. Okay. So I started my period when I went to Mexico and I was prepared. I knew this was going to happen, but I brought tampons and I ran out. So I went to the store and I found a store after two hours, I found a store that was selling them. This little old man was selling, he was probably like in his seventies selling items from, you could tell they were from the US. So they were probably like gas station items because it was like the small little box of tampons. And I was like, oh, can I have these, you know, or, you know, I want to purchase these. 
And he was like, so embarrassed. And I was like, you're selling them. <laughs> what? Wait, like, who did he think was going to buy them where he wouldn't be embarrassed? Right. Like a farmer. Or, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but I was like, so I was just like, oh, like, this is why I teach what I teach, because this should not be like this huge thing. Like, it's a basic necessity. So, yeah, that's just an example. <laughs> what about I you, Yes, I wanted to add that I'm going to admit that it wasn't until I went through ACFC that I dropped the shame about buying tampons myself. So I could, I sensed it and I wasn't aware of it until I went through the class and I'm like, oh my goodness. And yes, to the point that it's interesting that we don't talk much about these things, but I don't know if that happened with you, Anna, but in Puerto Rico, whenever a girl has her first menstrual period, it's announced to the family. They're sustaining for it, Canto el Gallo, like the rooster sang. And they just share that information, which is so, I don't know, to me, it's like an irony. Like we don't talk about those things, but when we have our first menstrual period, we have to announce it to everybody. Yeah, I don't have that experience, but I'm definitely sure that some people listening have. (laughs) Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. Chris, I'd love to hear from your perspective, like what's a place that you see dual socialization kind of showing up with very different messages, whether that's sort of like how things are in the U.S., how things are in Puerto Rico or your family or your culture, like, or your religion, but where's the place you see that happening? So, yes, I want to share a little bit of what, what Anna said. I remember as she was talking about, I had friends home. I was probably like a teenager and we were unloading the, the dryer from the laundry and some underwear was on top of the, of the clothes basket. And my dad freaked out. He's like, that's so intimate. How dare you cross the living room with a basket with underwear? So I think it's one of those things. And I don't know if you want to include this, but, you know, I focus on the women's relationship with food and with their bodies. Mm-hmm. And I grew up so confused because we are expected to look a certain way. Like, I remember I just had delivered my first baby and my parents who were home, my dad grabbed my belly. I was not yet like a month postpartum. And he told me, oh, I see you're working on your second baby. So it's kind of like normal in a way for particularly the the men in the family to comment on our bodies. But at the same time, it seemed very disrespectful if you don't eat or have seconds of what they serve you. So it's the shaming for our bodies and then the shaming for our eating behavior. So it's kind of like we're always under the radar. So growing up, I was just very confused about what was expected or what was I supposed to do. I need to look a certain way, but the behavior expected for me from eating did not align with that. Yeah. And I, I think like the dominant U.S. culture, the socialization on eating for women is like, don't eat, always eat less, like... Right. And then so if you were going back and forth and Jewish culture is like that, too, like, you know, and the same thing, it's like my grandmother would be like wanting you to eat seconds. So like you go to a restaurant, she'd be like, order whatever you want. Are you hungry? Do you want more? She'd send you home with food that she'd also be concerned about your weight. Right. And so you're just like, it's like that kind of conflict between I think, you know, I think it's like it just shows like her socialization and then her cultural that, you know, there's like the cultural background of like being Jewish and being immigrants and like depending on what kind of Jewish family you were descended from, potentially having food insecurity in your past or like, you know, living in a, on a farm or in a peasant village, like not having enough food, that always being a concern. 
And then, you know, being in America and being socialized that being thin is the most important thing for a woman. And then just like the total cognitive dissonance of being like, you need to lose some weight. Here's some snacks, eat them now. And like what you're just like, what the fuck? What am I supposed to do here? Yes. And also when you do start to lose weight, they're like, oh, you're getting really skinny here. Like, yes, here's some, you look so good. Oh, you're you're too skinny. And you're just like, what is it? What do you want from me? But right. then I think, especially like in Jewish, it's so confusing, right? In Jewish families also like food is love. Like that's how you're, some Jewish families, at least mine, it's like, that's how you are expressing your love is cooking and feeding your family. So you're like, okay, so you want me to eat less and I'm supposed to be skinny, but if I don't eat, I'm personally rejecting your love. And so like, yeah, it's just, there's it's, it's some conflicting messages. Yes. So I'm curious how you navigate simulation and the model, which is one of the things that you guys thought would be useful to share. So I would definitely love to hear that. What are your thoughts about like, how does it impact your use of, and we say the model, we're saying the coaching model basically, but, and I think we can make that even a little more general. Not everybody on the call necessarily uses or knows the model that we teach in the clutch, but how do you navigate kind of assimilation and coaching? How does that come up? And how do you think coaching tools help people handle assimilation? Yeah, I think prior to ACFC, I was just like, oh, there's this one way to do it, (laughs) you know, and like, you can only do it this way. But what I noticed, like after the fact was that it was kind of me like assuming their experience, because there's a lot of stereotypes typically that I use in my coaching, and they can seem like generalizations, but the vast majority of my clients have similar experiences to mine. Mm -hmm. So I think it starts out with just getting really specific, like, what was your experience just diving into that? Even if we don't necessarily do any coaching, just really like taking them back, like what was this like for you? So for example, I had a client that wanted to work on boundaries with her parents. And so we were, I was like, okay, what was it like, like growing up with them? Why do you want to set their boundaries? And just getting really curious about like, where is this thought pattern coming from? And it almost seemed like no coaching was taking place because I was just asking like all the background to -hmm. get to like, if we were going to use the model, get to a very specific C and have her understand why she's thinking what she's thinking to begin with. Like, what is the reason behind this boundary? Because what she thought it was, was like not necessarily even close. And sometimes people aren't even ready to set, like to create like necessarily an unintentional model. They're just kind of like, I want to sit with my thought down a little of all these things and my experiences and all that. And we're just going to sit there for a second. And then I'll come back when I've kind of digested this thought model. I feel like family is such a good example because the socialization around family in the US is sort of like you get to be 18 and then you leave home and then you are like your own new person and like your parents shouldn't be that involved in your life. And like, it's important to be independent and leave the hat, right? Like we have a very different model than a lot of immigrant culture. Certainly like Jewish culture is not like that. And I think- you know, mm-hmm. I, I like listening to, you know, my friends who come from more kind of like indistinct U.S. generally Christian background, you know, just sort of like whatever the differences in attitude. <laughs> I once dated somebody who had gotten, not that this is the goal, but who had gotten estranged from his family. And, he, you know, he was like a white Christian Midwestern guy. And I was just sort of like, I don't, how do you get estranged from a family? Like my family would... I don't think you can get estranged from Jewish parents. Like, I think they would just show up on your door. And if you'd left, they'd hire a private investigator. I mean, there's just like, no, that's just like not even a concept in my mind that that would be possible. So I'm curious. Yeah. Chris, if you have, if you have thoughts. For sure. I'm curious, you know, there's a common denominator between Jewish families and Hispanic families, because 
Definitely, in my experience, what you start the the theme of leaving the home and how involved your parents should be. From my personal experience, that was a big issue for me that the that coaching and the model helped me with the people pleasing part of it. So my parents would come home with a one way ticket. Mm. And by the eighth week, I would be like, oh, like eighth week, when are you thinking of going back? And my dad would get very <laughs> defensive. Oh, you don't want us here? I'm like, what do you mean? You're like, like, do you months. live here now or what's <laughs> happening? <laughs> so I had to establish that boundary. I think I was very gracious. I gave them four weeks, which is funny when I talk with my American friends, they're right. like, four weeks? Like my brother, he's married to an American person, lady, and she has the limit of four days. So it's just that culture shock of what the expectation is. And then once I, you settle the boundary, my parents stopped talking to me for a while. But wow. now I see the fruits of it. Like we enjoy yeah. each other more. I was kind of like trying to let them de- be there for however long, but I was not showing up the way that I wanted to. I was resentful, disengaged, always with a long face. And now we enjoy each other more. And even my kids enjoy their grandpas more because like their grandparents, because they're not like they're in their face. And also that's another thing that wanted to parent and correct my children. And I would tell my mom, mom, just be a grandma, just be a grandma. Like I'm the mom. Let me be the backup. You enjoy being a grandma. I think that's such a, what I love about that story is that like, I think part of the lie that people experience in you know, feeling conflict between different cultural socializations is that like they have to pick one, like one is the right one. And like, which one am I supposed to be? But your mm-hmm. story, so that story is so beautiful because you're like, actually, I get to make my own version, right? I get to combine these things. I don't have to turn into like four days. That's what Americans do, right? Or like indefinite because that's what my parents <laughs> from Puerto Rico want to do. Like you get to set your own, right? I think that's where thought work can be so powerful to see like, okay, well, my parents clearly have this set of thoughts and we're like, my sister-in-law has this set of thoughts. Like what are my thoughts and preferences? Like seeing where all of that comes from and how it all is. I mean, one of the beauties of dual socializations, I feel like it can actually help you see how subjective all the thoughts are. Cause you're like, well, I'm getting two totally contradictory sets of thoughts here. So obviously Mm -hmm. there isn't an objective true one. And I get to decide how I want to chart that middle path. Yes. Do you have any thoughts about that? Anna? Yeah, I'm just thinking about like going back to like assimilation and like how this common saying of like, oh, only like white people do that or like that's that's what something that white people do. And typically the thing that they're doing supposedly is like this more like moral thing, like going to therapy and things like that. And it's like this very common saying, I think, amongst many non-white communities. Uh And it's almost like putting white people like on a pedestal Hmm. and I don't know. I think there needs to be like one, that's not something that only white people do. And I think that it, it, for many people, it feels like they're abandoning their culture by doing something that isn't necessarily common in, in our culture. And like, so if I'm talking about Latinos, for example, like therapy, isn't really common. We don't talk about mental health and that's just like one example. So if we go to therapy, it's like, oh, that's something that white people do. That's like, and we're also seen as like being more assimilated. So then we're like leaving our culture behind, which means then we're leaving our family behind. It's like this whole catastrophizing by like our entire family, because we decided to go to therapy. 
And I think one of the most beautiful things about our culture is that we have like a lot of traditions, like cultural traditions and things like that, but not going to therapy is not a cultural tradition. And <laughs> it's I only been around for a hundred years. So this can't right. be like a longstanding tradition. Right. Like we, I think there's like a disconnect between what an actual cultural t- tradition is and like something that we only see, have seen white people doing just because it's new to us, new to our culture, whatever that may be doesn't mean it's only for white people and doesn't mean we have to give up our Latinidad just to our Latin identity just to, you know, go to therapy or whatever it is. I would like to add to that. I don't know if in other Hispanic cultures it's prevalent, but in Puerto Rico, you grow up with this kind of like underlying thought and belief. And they actually tell to you that you have to improve the race. And what mm-hmm. they mean by that is marry whiter than you. You know, in mm-hmm. Puerto Rico, the culture is a combination of the Native Americans, the Black people who came from Africa to work the fields, and then the Spaniards, the European. So there's always like this belief to, to marry whiter. And then when we come to the United States, it's that dichotomy. I have cousins that my uncles wouldn't let them learn Spanish because They wanted to be whiter. They didn't want them to have an accent. But then at the same time, it's like what Anna is saying. They're like, oh, you're betraying your culture. So it's kind of like, again, like with the food thing, it's like this confusing messaging. Like we have to be whiter, but at the same time without letting go of who we are as a culture. So it's kind of like you need to balance that out. And like with the model and with coaching, just kind of like think for yourself, like, what do I want? And I'm seeing that with raising my kids, like they are first generation. And I will not lie to you. I had to get coached three times on my kids not talking Spanish. Mm-hmm. And now my daughter is having a Southern accent, <laughs> which I was <laughs> not expecting. <laughs> so it's kind of like, it, it really, it affected me more than I thought it would because I'm yeah. on the side, like, I want them to speak Spanish, but you know, it is what it is. So it, it's kind of like, it's just interesting to navigate all those things. Yeah, that's so funny. They're like, my daughter has a Southern accent. What's happening? (laughs) (laughs) Now what culture does she belong to? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I think that's such a good point that the like conflicting messages around assimilation and like around, and I I think also obviously those can vary like not only by culture, but even in cultures, right? So you'll have like, there's certainly like Jewish communities that are sort of trying to prevent assimilation. And then there's people whose families like, change their name when they got here to seem less Jewish. And, you know, and then there's people whose families did that. And now who are like, well, I kind of want to go back to my old family name or like, I want to undo some of that, those effects of assimilation. But of course that's partly because anti-Semitism has become a little less vocally mainstream and Jews are more white passing. And so now it's like safer, quote unquote, there's a little, feels a little more space to go back to more of those markers. Right. So it's like something that changes as, people culturally adapt as people assimilate, like, and as the culture changes its definition of who's white, which is all made up anyway, right? Like there's more or less space to express cultural identity in ways that are going to be seen as detracting from whiteness or detracting from your white proximity or as kind of allowable within that. Mm -hmm. I have a partner in my bakery business, and I don't really want to include this, but my baking business partner, she immigrated from Venezuela five years ago. And she calls me the gringa of the two of us, the gringa partner. And I don't like that. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> because, 
like, we need to coach you. Have you told her that you don't like being called that? I really don't. I have been passive aggressive about it. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm Hispanic too. <laughs> but because I white pass, so she yeah. refers to me like, yeah, I'm refers to me all of that. <laughs> right. And I think that changes over your life too, right? Like, I think that when I was younger, I felt much more like, like I felt less... I actually had more religious observance, but felt less Jewish identity. And then as I get older, right, I see more Mm -hmm. of that, like that identity has become stronger to me, whereas for some people, maybe it lessens as they go out in the world and they, you know, assimilate more to their surroundings. So I think that it's like you have a whole, you have a whole relationship with, right, with your different kind of communities and that can evolve in such different ways. So I'm curious to kind of hear from you both, how do you find, like, as you went through the advanced certification and feminist coaching, like, what did you sort of pull out of it that you think has kind of helped you think about this so that those people who are listening, who experience dual socialization can kind of learn from that and apply it themselves too? Yeah. Like all this shit is made up. <laughs> like, I, like I already knew that. Like the conclusion of every podcast, it's all made up guys. <laughs> have a good day. Like, you were my, co- you've been my coach for, I don't know how many years now. Like I already knew this, but now I'm like internalized it. Like it's actually like, it's all fucking made up. There are like 7 million messages from everywhere. And the kind of like the analogy that I've been using with my clients and even with the, with the clutch chicken. So you probably heard me say this if you're listening is like, if someone came in to your house and left a pair of shoes and they were two sizes too small and you're like, well, got to wear them. I can't throw them away. I can't sell them. I can't donate them. Just got to wear them. So you're walking around all cramped up. That is the same concept as using these thoughts that were just like, gifted to you or like injected into your mind as a child when you didn't know any better. And now you know that those are not even your opinions. Those are not your own thoughts. They're someone else's. And you continue practicing them, even though you know that they're not yours. And I'm like, that is so freeing because they're not even mine. And I love to throw away trash. My mother is a hoarder. So that is like my favorite (laughs) thing in the world. (laughs) So like, if I could just give away all these trash thoughts, I will be the happiest person on earth. Like, That's so good. Gladly. Yeah, Marie Kondo, your brain. What are you doing with a brain? Right? People are like, right. I have a capsule wardrobe, but 700,000 thoughts in my brain I haven't looked at. Like, right. you need a capsule brain wardrobe much more. <laughs> right. So much more room for activities. Yeah. What do you think, Chris? What about you? Yes, I, I'm going to jump in and start with the freedom that Anna was expressing. It's just... After ACFC, it's kind of like time has slowed down. And whenever I find myself in kind of like these moments of dichotomy or when I feel uncomfortable or I'm confused, I just pause and I'm like, I can see where it's coming from. And then I get to examine it and just decide if I want to keep that or not, not only for myself, but when I'm interacting, particularly he's coming up a lot. As you can see, I have (laughs) issues with my dad, particularly with him when I have conversations with him. I can also hold that space for him. I'm like, oh, this is where he's coming from. Doesn't mean anything about me. And I don't know, it's just beautiful because it also has allowed me to be more compassionate Mm -hmm. for him, for myself, and then just choose and not make it mean that what I choose is bad or good or what he's choosing is bad or good. It's just the way we choose to, to live our lives. That's such a good point. I just, the, right before this, I recorded a podcast with Danny and Lindsay Pullman about like men and patriarchy. And and I feel like one of the brain mistakes we make, not just in this area, in all areas, but the story about your father, I think is really powerful, is like, we think that like 
somehow being resistant and mad will give us the fuel to like disconnect from the person or like to change our thought. It's like, if I have compassion for him, I'll be like less motivated to change the thought or something. I just, I've like not said it in these words before, but I feel like that's actually a really common brain error. It's like, if I have compassion for him, then somehow I like can't, can less recognize that it's wrong or can less recognize that I don't want to think that way. And that's just like so backwards, right? Like it's actually just, if you have a hundred, let's say you have a hundred kilowatts of power to change your brain. If you're spending 90 of them being mad at somebody else about their thoughts, then you only can power your brain change with 10% energy, right? If you are able to have compassion for the other person, you can get that down to like 20% resistance of them. Now you have 80 kilowatts of energy to change your brain. Like that's such a common, and I think that makes so much sense in the context of this work on dual socialization of like, you don't have to one reconcile it because it may not be reconcilable. Like you literally are just potentially learning completely contradictory things and that's okay. Right. And you don't have to, as Anna was saying, like accept the definition you've been given. Like, what does that even mean to be a good Jew or to be a good Latino? You could ask 10 people, get 10 different definitions. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like, we talk about it. Like identity can be a source of real like strength and comfort for people. And then it can also be like a blanket. We talk about it like it's one thing, but it means so many different things. I think like that approach of like, I totally get why my parents were both telling me to lose weight and eat more food. (laughs) Like they had confusing socialization also like, Mm -hmm. and that's okay. I can have compassion for that. But like, what's that middle course that I want to chart? Yeah. I think a lot of people confuse like compassion with acceptance. Like if like, as if it's like a married couple, like if I'm compassionate, then I also have to accept it. Like the same idea with or concept with forgiveness, right? Like if right. I forgive this person, that means I'm like saying the behavior is okay, yeah. but that's I'm not condoning it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And we, th- and we actually think that it like gives, I think we think it motivates us the same way. It's like, well, if I hate my job enough, I'll leave it. And I'm like, no, right. if you hate your job mm-hmm. enough, you cry a lot and watch a lot of Netflix at night and then go back to the job <laughs> the next day. And then you just do that again. Right. right? So good. I actually, you say like, that's not the goal, but I had been, you know, this dynamic with my dad, kind of like, I just went to Puerto Rico a month ago for a wedding. The day that I departed, he sent like a really, a text that I was not happy about. And I was going to like lash out at him. And instead, again, I leaned into what I just explained. And I just told him, you know, I love you and respect you. I'm sorry that sometimes that message doesn't get across to you. That's kind of like the five word message, like in a nutshell, randomly yesterday morning I wake up at a message from him that says in a nutshell I'm sorry I want to have for us to have a great relationship and I'm like my dad is Mm -hmm. saying I'm sorry like it's just again that was not the goal or anything we hadn't talked about it at all but it's like we're saying like I just held compassion for him I stopped with my boundaries Mm -hmm. while holding compassion and then I'm like oh it really does take one person to change for the relationship to change. This is so fascinating because I'm now spending a lot of time thinking about like child psychology and child development Mm -hmm. as I'm now with somebody who has children and like interacting with them. And like everything, all the positive parenting psychology tells you is that like, you know, everybody comes in being like, I need to know how to have consequences to change behavior. Like, just like people come in being like, I need boundaries to change my parents. Like I need consequences to change my kids. And what they teach you in the, in the, you know, child rearing context is like, it's actually all about connection. You have to establish connection and then you are able to like persuade basically. And that trying to start with consequences is like trying to start with coercive punishment. If you haven't built the connection, it doesn't work. 
And so, I mean, what you're describing is kind of the same thing. It's like, rather Mm -hmm. than the fight and the resist, it's just like, I'm just going to be the first person to offer compassion in this situation. Mm -hmm. Like maybe it's sometimes it is going to come back to you sometimes not, but either way, like you've then done that. That's not really about dual socialization, but that just seemed like it's useful. (laughs) Now I want to do a whole podcast about how we can use positive parenting techniques on the adults in our lives. All right. We will have, we'll have a different conversation about that. Thank you guys so much for coming on. Tell people where they can find more about you. Yeah. So you can find me in the clutch. So if you've been thinking about joining the clutch, great great way to join. Or if you want (laughs) one-to-one coaching, Anna does one-to-one coaching in the clutch also, sex or anything else. I'm a, yeah. So I'm a clutch member turned clutch coach. So that should say how great it is. But anyway, (laughs) uh, I also have my own business called Sex and Spanglish. You can find me anywhere, Sex and Spanglish. I mostly play on Instagram. I also have a podcast, Sex and Spanglish, where we talk about sex in Spanglish. So there you go. <laughs> Love <Consistent> it. Branding. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So you can find me on Facebook and TikTok as Chris Berlingeri MD, Chris with a C and not an H, C R I S B E R L I N G E R I M D. We'll put um, it in the show notes. I have this problem too okay. when I go on other people's podcasts. <laughs> and I'm like, low and thigh, just, uh, we'll just put it in the show notes. Okay. And then on Instagram, I'm coach Chris Berlingeri MD. And then I have a podcast too. It's called The Joyful weight loss podcast easier to search okay my friends thank you for coming on i'll see you guys soon thank you thanks if you're a coach or thinking about becoming a coach and listening to this podcast has made you realize that you don't want to be coaching inside that white box that you want your coaching to be able to speak to the huge diversity of identities and lived experiences and to be deepened and enriched by a historical and cultural and intellectual perspective so that you are truly coaching at the highest level and you are truly helping to elevate the coaching industry and elevate the coaching discourse until it can actually speak to everyone and change the world, then the advanced certification in feminist coaching is what you need. The waitlist for the next round of the advanced certification in feminist coaching is now open. This is the list that gets the first shot at registering for the certification. Last time that we ran it, we filled it entirely from this waitlist. So if you think you might want to join the program, you need to be on this waitlist. You can text your email to plus one three four seven nine nine seven one seven eight four. You text your email to that address and then you will get a response asking for a code word and you just type back ACFC, just the letters all in a row, uppercase, ACFC. So text your email to plus one three four seven nine nine seven one seven eight four and use the code word ACFC when you're prompted. Or you can go to unfuckyourbrain.com forward slash ACFC. I'll see you there. If you're loving what you're learning in the podcast, you have got to come check out The Clutch. The Clutch is the podcast community for all things Unfuck Your Brain. It's where you can get individual help applying the concepts to your own life. It's where you can learn new coaching tools not shared on the podcast that will blow your mind even more. And it's where you can hang out and connect over all things thought work with other podcast chickens just like you and me. It's my favorite place on earth and it will change your life. I guarantee it. Come join us at www.unfuckyourbrain.com forward slash the clutch. That's unfuckyourbrain.com forward slash the clutch. I can't wait to see you there.